we know that God reconciles all things. And that is our vision. But there are some things that are irreconcilable. Each of us could make our own list of what those things are. Things that we cannot imagine that God can fix or could tolerate in the world that God is creating. Murder, rape, abuse of children, dipping french fries in mayonnaise. There is a definitive category of actions that are unreconcilable with the shalom, the setting right of all things that God is working in the world. And that paradox is what brings us to this service, this series on reconciliation. What does God do with unreconcilable things? What does God do with unreconcilable people? What are we to do with unreconcilable people? This is a particular poignant question for those of us who grew up in Anabaptist traditions where our, our identity was formed as peacemakers in the world. We have been raised to look at everything through the lens of peacemaking and to arrive at some sort of bridge or common ground or space for healing as quickly as possible. It is our vocation and our calling to leave the world more peaceful than it was when we arrived. For some of us in the Anabaptist tradition, we come from a legacy of men who saved the lives of soldiers who hunted them, women who sang songs while burning at the stake, farmers who turned the other cheek to thieves, and a strong belief that there is no one so far below us or irreconciled from us that we cannot share a good meal with them, particularly if it is a starchy, high-carb meal. And that outlook serves us well until we come to a moment like this. Until we face violence that is unrepentant, that threatens to persist. How do we peacemake with violence? When we see pictures of extremists in self-styled paramilitary uniforms attacking a building full of lawmakers and threatening them with death, peacemaking may not be our most helpful lens. The idea of dialogue and common ground have lost both their luster and their integrity this week. I want to share you with you an image that one of my Mennonite friends shared with me on Facebook this week. Uh, it is a twist on the this is Bob meme that was popular uh, circa 2015. Uh, and if you don't recall that, it's probably because you were doing far more important things in 2015. Uh, but I think the meme still stands. So I'll share with you this image. 
and I will read it aloud as well. This is Bob. He voted Republican. This is Bob's friend, Sally. Sally voted Democrat. Bob wants to put many of Sally's friends into concentration camps. Bob is still friends with Sally because she's white. Sally is still friends with Bob because she is a coward and challenging white supremacy makes her uncomfortable. This may make you laugh. It may make you squirm a little bit in your seat. For me, it did both, which was a sign that perhaps this meme was indeed art and was something that I ought to pay attention to. We can acknowledge that there is a line of human behavior beyond which repentance is a prerequisite for peace. There are things that a person can do to us that are so beyond the pale we must cut off contact with that person until their behavior changes. There are acts so harmful that any overture to peacemaking becomes a willingness to tolerate violence. The problem is that that line is not obvious. And when we see Bob and Sally, some of us may like to know more about Bob before deciding whether Sally is a coward or courageous. Some of us might be uncomfortable with the clear party designations and the way that that correlates with good and bad. And other of us may feel like, yeah, go Sally, forget you and forget Bob and just get rid of it all. And I think it is important to live in that mix of emotion. We can't always be confident that what we're doing is the right thing. We don't always know when a relationship is just about to turn a corner or is on the edge of reconciliation or when it is going to plummet us further into despair, into alliances that pull us away from what we are called to be. No one can make that decision for you. But the question is one that I, in being faithful, have to raise. In the wake of the events that we've seen this week, the question is not, what can I do to reconcile with those who are pointing guns at Capitol security guards? But perhaps the question is, what are the places where my overtures to peacemaking are tolerating violence? And perhaps that is not about interpersonal relationships. Perhaps that is about your relationships with systems, structures, institutions. We have seen in Facebook, Twitter, and Amazon models for what this answer looks like institutionally. For once in their institutional and soulless lives, they have drawn a line about what tolerating violence looks like. 
But amidst all of that, there must be some space for reconciliation, right? What about Zacchaeus? What about Zacchaeus and Jesus? I was this close to singing the Zacchaeus song for you this morning that I learned in my Sunday school classes, but I realized that we've been through a lot this week and I didn't need to put you through that too. But in this moment where Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, who is indisputably in the wrong, who lived in a time where the tax collector had discretion to add a surcharge onto the taxes for their service in collecting it. And that there was wide leeway for them to charge whatever they felt they could charge. And this policy had made Zacchaeus very rich. He had indisputably taken more than he needed unjustly imposed upon those in the city, had created cycles of poverty in Jericho, had sustained and upheld them. And in this moment, something shifts. Zacchaeus, eager to see Jesus, runs on ahead and climbs a tree to keep an eye out for Jesus. And it doesn't say much about his dignity here or how he reconciled this with his own behavior as one who is wealthy and also often made fun of for his appearance, which I think is a parallel worth noting to today. How easy it is to make fun of our enemies for the way that they look rather than the actions that they take. But what happens in this moment when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, sees him in a tree, Jesus says nothing about the compromising position of adults stuck in trees. Jesus simply sees him, names him, and aligns himself with Zacchaeus. He says, I am going to your house. And this statement is in fact more stunning than a man in a tree. And so Zacchaeus climbs down and is taken with delight and the crowd around them are shocked even more so than they were by pretending not to see Zacchaeus stuck in the tree. And they begin to grumble. Jesus has gone to a sinner's house as a guest. And Zacchaeus's response is to say, here and now I give half my belongings to poor people. And if I've defrauded them in the least, I will pay them back fourfold. When Zacchaeus is called out, he makes a public declaration of how he will reconcile with those who he has wronged. And this reconciliation between Zacchaeus and Jesus, it is not a meeting in the middle. It's not like the interaction that Jesus had with Nicodemus, 
who I preached about several months ago. Remember, Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus by night and who had a long back and forth ongoing conversation about how the radical justice movement can make itself more palatable to the mainstream. Nicodemus admired Jesus from afar, but when it came down to it, he didn't really show up until Jesus was dead. And Zacchaeus has a different kind of interaction. There is a meeting of the minds here, but they do not meet halfway. This is Zacchaeus taking 10 steps toward Jesus and Jesus staying absolutely still. This is Zacchaeus caught by an idea that causes him to make a radical transformation. Arguably, Zacchaeus only takes nine steps. I'm a little bit ambivalent about this sentence. I'll give away half my wealth. And I tell myself, well, Zacchaeus was wealthy, but he wasn't like Jay-Z and Beyonce wealthy. He was like Chance the Rapper pre-coloring book wealthy. Half of his wealth still left him with, with a reasonable middle-class lifestyle. It wasn't, it didn't leave him exorbitantly wealthy. Uh, but I think there's room for debate there. I might be wrong. At any rate, Zacchaeus was a Jesus sympathizer whose life was at odds with Jesus' message and vision. And when it came down to it, he acknowledged the ways that his life was at odds. And he made a public commitment to change. He articulated clear and measurable goals about what his progress toward creating a more just and equitable Roman empire would look like. And I think this is amazing, the, the level of specificity in his goals. I will give away half my wealth. I will repay those four times as much. That's, that's a very specific way to articulate the change that you are trying to make. And I think there's something perhaps that we can learn about how we articulate our own movement toward change and what it looks like. But Zacchaeus was not an extremist. He was not a militant. He was not carrying 12 spears and a slingshot and some pipe bombs when he climbed up that tree. And the Bible might leave out some details, but I think Luke would have mentioned those if they were present. This reconciliation between Jesus and Zacchaeus, it is not Jesus and the most radical branch of Roman oppression. It is Jesus speaking with the middlemen, with those who have caught up and been benefited within the system, but who carry some ambivalence about their role. This was a full-on conversion for Zacchaeus. And what Jesus asked of his disciples was not to meet halfway in a good-natured and spirited debate. Jesus said, here is what we are called to, and here is what we are called from. And Jesus did not try to reconcile with everyone he met. He reconciled with many, most of the people he interacted with. 
But there were times when he took reconciliation off the table and just said, I can't talk to you anymore. Come back when you've changed your hearts and minds. I'm thinking of the rich man who was not willing to give away his possessions or the soldiers that Jesus encountered at Gethsemane or the vendors that he drove out of the temple. There were cases when Jesus said clearly, here is our point of departure and there is no middle ground there. (coughs) So what then is our role in God's reconciling work? What are we to do next? I bring up these points about relating to extremists because I think that is often where we are tempted to start in the biggest picture. But the place to start is where you are now in the relationships that you have in your space. What are the ways that you lean into reconciliation? How can you do more of what you have already started to do? How do you participate in the alternative systems being constructed right here? Our call in this moment may not be to start with the hardest and most difficult relationships to reconcile. But to look around at the reconciliation that we can do, that we have already started. Perhaps it is not a question of who has wronged you, but who have you wronged? And can you start with those reconciliations? Perhaps the call is to move deeper into movements of racial equity and justice, to identify those root causes of oppression, incarceration, voter disenfranchisement, racism, poverty, and to think about how we reconcile those. In this season of New Year's resolutions, Perhaps we can make a resolution as Zacchaeus did around becoming more anti-racist. Many of us have taken many steps over the past several months. What is next? What are the things as you look at this year ahead that you are called to? How do you set specific goals for yourself and the transformation you are undertaking. Zacchaeus set his big goal, but he didn't accomplish it all that day. That was his project for months, tracking down the people who he had extorted money from and making reparations with them. What are ways that you will be learning this year, growing, working with new organizations, pushing the organizations you are already involved in. I do believe it is absolutely critical that there are people doing the work of de-radicalizing white men with guns. I also believe that is highly specialized work. 
that is the dismantling of terrorism. And if that is work that you are called to do, embrace that. Build the skills that you need for that work. Talk with others. Learn who is doing this kind of anti-hate work in this country and around the world. I believe and I hope that Mennonites take an active role in constructing off-ramps for lost souls on the highway of white nationalism. I would love to see Mennonite leaders and thinkers paving the way for a framework of de-radicalization. But most of us are not ready for that work now. If that is your call, I cannot wait to support you. And let me know how I can. If it is finding trainings, connecting with certain people, learning more about that work. Perhaps it is co-founding an organization that does that work. But if that is not work that you are called to do, if that de-radicalizing and undoing terrorism is not your call, then ask what is the next step on my journey to reconciliation? The difference between us and those who broke into the Capitol is that we have an end goal. We know what a reconciled world looks like. We have a clear vision. And many have commented that this mob came out far better than it could have been because there was no clear end goal. But we can see a vision and a way forward. We imagine a more just and equitable world in concrete terms. We envision an end to mass incarceration, a more sustainable relationship with our planet, a humane immigration system, housing for all, healthcare for all. It is our work to cast a vision so beautiful that it avalanches itself. It is our work to keep dreaming, to move forward on our own paths and invite others to join you in your work. And that is the reconciliation that we can undertake now. We'll listen to a song in a moment. My soul cries out. When Mary sang this song as she was pregnant with Jesus, she did not imagine a halfway compromise with the Roman Empire. A world in which her son was maybe racially profiled, but not outwardly attacked and arrested. She imagined a total abolition of injustice. Let us be bold in dreaming what reconciliation looks like. 